Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Without wanting to go on a rant about the patriarchy, I think we're all operating in a system that's very built for men, even just in the way that, uh, you know, a man goes through his um, cycle of energy uh, in a 24-hour period and women go through their cycle of energy in a 28-day period. And so if you think about just the way the world works and particularly the workplace works, it's built around a 24-hour day. Whereas our energy levels as women completely change over the course of a month and the type of work we should be doing at any given day of the month could should could and should probably change. But we, we just keep pushing because we're trying to do it in a man's way. I'm your host, Natalie Drenovac, and this is The Modern Women, a show that seeks to share the stories and experiences of women that may be out of our line of sight. My guest today is the exceptionally intelligent and magnetic Justine Bloom. Despite successfully climbing her way up the corporate ladder to become Chief Strategy Officer of VaynerMedia in New York City, amongst many other accolades, Justine decided to flip everything she had come to know as life on its head. She chose to recalibrate her corporate prowess to now command her own empire. And Justine asks the questions that many of us are sometimes too afraid to. What is really important in our lives? And are we actually trusting our gut and instincts? For those who haven't subscribed to The Modern Women, be sure to do so now so you don't miss any upcoming episodes and can be notified for when they go live. And if you love this episode or any others, ensure you share it with another modern woman in your life. Thank you for joining me, Justine. Thank you for having me. Let's kick off with your rapid fires. How would you define being a modern woman? I think being a modern woman is writing your own script. What's a mistake in your life you'd make again? Uh, This will sound awful, but having my son, because he was a surprise, um, but I would definitely do that again. I did have a feeling you'd say that. What is an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love? An unusual habit, uh, I would say that it's it's crying at a lot of random things. That like is uh, that's help. something that my son would point out. Well, like I'll cry in ads. Um, I'll cry when someone says something at a at an event, and I, I will just cry at the drop of a hat. So that's interesting because I did find in my research that your mother used to say that you were like nails because you never cried. Yes, this was not an always uh, thing. This was later in life. 
Welcome to vulnerability. Uh, if you could mm-hmm. only do one for the rest of your life, would it be meditating or journaling? Ooh, that's that's a tough one. Uh, I'm going to say meditating. If you could use one word to describe how you feel about yourself, what would it be? Uh, expanding. What's something you wish you could tell women once and they'd believe forever? That they are enough. Well, I like that. I feel like most women should probably be reminded of that daily. Uh, but daily. so that actually that actually leads me into, as I was saying to you, crafting this interview together was quite interesting, somewhat nuanced because of the fact that you have had such a illustrious corporate career and yet I didn't want to talk about that at all. Um, but to give a quick synopsis perhaps so everyone else can understand everything you've achieved, could you just share a bit about where you started, where you ended up, and then the 180? Sure. Uh, my career has been a, a magical mystery tour. Uh, it definitely wasn't like a, a planned thing, but I, I think I just had a very ambitious gene and so worked really hard and went really far really quickly uh, in marketing and advertising and found myself at sort of the the top of my game in New York in an agency uh, working with some high-profile people and kind of had a an out-of-body experience where I thought this isn't how I thought this would feel. You know, when you kind of have this goal and you push and push and push to achieve it and then you get there and you think you're going to feel a certain way and I definitely did not feel that way and it was uh like I said, an out-of-body experience, and I realized I'd kind of been doing life wrong. So I quit and left New York and have really then spent uh, this year in particular focusing on redefining what success means for me and uh, slowing down a lot. What did it used to mean for you in regards to success? For me, success definitely used to mean uh, title. It used to mean money, salary, material things. You know, it was the climbing the corporate ladder. That was that was success, was getting to the top of that. Even though I don't think I ever really could define what the top of it was. It was just kind of mindlessly climbing. <laughs> and so getting to the top, uh, I think the other piece of it, I mean, that sounds quite... Um, materialistic, which it is, and very ego-led, which it was. Uh, I think throughout that period, though, the thing that really motivated me to keep going was um, having impact and having impact on people's lives. So over that period, I really did learn that I got most of my fulfillment, not from the title, not from uh, the money per se, but just from being able to have impact on other people's lives, my team's lives, and help them build their careers. So that was, I think, what kept me so long in uh, in that career because I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. In regards to the fact of how you mentored women, well, I know you mentor women now, but how you did throughout your corporate career, was there anything that actually led you to do that or find that it was a important thing to do? Because I know that there are some women who – don't give a shit about the women who are below them, but I know for you it was an important thing to make sure that everyone was kind of moving forward within what they were desiring. Yeah, I think it, um, I don't think there was like a, a moment in time that was an, an epiphany or anything. 
I think it was more just that I had felt so supported throughout my my own career. You know, I didn't go to university. And so in my head, I think I felt like I was on the back foot really early, early on in my career. And so I worked really, really hard, but I also had um, I had the support of a lot of really influential people that I didn't necessarily ask for. And I felt so grateful for that. And I uh, felt like that was a really big part of why I was so successful. So I think there was kind of this sense of needing to pass that along and knowing what an impact it had on me that I too could also have that impact. Uh, I think that um, that was definitely part of it. And I think it went into overdrive when I became a mother and, you know, that maternal instinct really does kick in in all areas of life and you start to think about everything very differently. So uh, that had a huge impact on how I approached building teams in the workplace. Do you think that mothers are more, like that's the reason why women are more empathetic in regards to like corporate office work because of their mothering nature? Uh, I'm not sure I would necessarily generalise, but... I will say from my own experience, prior to being a parent, I was very selfish and was very um, focused on my own ambition. And I don't think I would have paid as much attention to other people's uh, needs and wants if I hadn't been sort of forced to or thrown into having to do that in my personal life um, because I was raising my son on my own. So there was no one else that was... uh, that was doing that for him. It was just me. So it was me or he was going to die. So, you know, it kind of forced me into that. Yeah. Okay. So I, something I wanted to unpack with you was that I know that you had one day where you woke up and you thought, Hey, I'm going to leave this high level C-suite job, but were there any other nudges along the way that you ignored? Absolutely. I ignored so many. Uh, there was an annual existential crisis that I would have uh, where, you know, I'd wake up and think, you know, marketing is, uh, it's not for me. It sometimes, it, it would always depend on the clients that I was working with and the projects that I was on, but it would always reach a point where I would say, wow, when you really boil it down, I'm, I'm literally learning how people think so that I can manipulate them into buying things they don't need. Like that's what marketing is. <laughs> And so, I mean, it can be used for good. And then I would, I would have this annual existential crisis and I would think about all the things I would rather be doing, uh, but I would feel uh, a little stuck and sometimes afraid that, A, I would have to pivot my career and almost start again, and B, that I, w- I would lose all of the progress, the sort of in 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 ego terms, the progress I had made in terms of the level that I was at, the salary that I was on, you know, there was this kind of notion of uh, the lack of security financially that would come with making a big change like that. And I think that always kind of made me walk away from the ledge a bit. And then something would happen and I would start doing work with a great company that was doing really good in the world. And I'd say, well, I'm using my powers for good and that would make me feel better. But then again, the annual existential crisis would come. So that's exactly what I want to have majority of this chunk of interview to be talked about, because that's what I, that's what, I mean, it's certainly how I came to know you in regards to like, you got to this point, you made this 180 degree, and then you just moved from New York City to Oregon. 
And so do mm-hmm. you find, or at least I'm certainly finding, that I have a lot of friends who are having this innate restlessness in their careers and in their lives, and they're either feeling this helplessness or that there's no other options or that we're stuck. And so... Yeah, it is... No, please continue. It's something I think about a lot. I think about this a lot because I know um, just even from the people that reach out to me on DM that I don't know them, but they are listening to some things that I post online and they're sharing their story with me. So I know it's not just me that is having some of these feelings. And I think there's a bit of a pressure cooker situation going on in society at the moment. And I don't think it's just work. I think uh, it's the pace of life and the the always on culture that we have. We're so connected to our phones and there's no real switch off. Um, There's no real moment to really power down and reconnect with yourself. It's a lot of outward bound energy that's being expended and there's only so much we can do that it doesn't matter what kind of human you are whether you're an extrovert or an introvert or how you regain your energy we all reach that point of burnout and then it's a case of okay well I feel like something has to change but how big a change am I willing to make that I think is what it comes down to Yeah, because I feel like we ask about passion, but yet people are responding with ambition. And it seems to be a rarity, or at least for most, that you can actually have have both. Like I often find that even if you're passionately ambitious, you become passionate about the climb versus what you're actually doing. And you just keep seeing yourself succeeding through titles and monetary gain. Yeah, and I think uh, what I've learned uh, particularly recently as I've really dug into like the neuroscience of it is, you know, achievement unlocked is a dopamine release and achievement unlocked comes in so many different formats. It's not just, you know, a promotion at work. It is, you know, the notification on your phone that tells you that your friend has messaged you. That is a dopamine release, albeit a smaller one than getting a promotion. But I think we're all getting a little addicted to that. Yeah. Don't you think that's just fucked up? It is. It is fucked up, especially because so many people are unaware of how the the way society works now is really playing on those that biochemistry and those emotions to have you like addicted. I mean, any app developer will tell you that they are developing apps with all the principles of gambling built in. That's kind of disturbing. I mean, I knew that, but it is disturbing when you kind of sit with it. Um, I wanted to, before we keep going down that track, I really wanted to think about the idea of, or at least your opinion on how did we actually get here? Because one thing that comes to mind as I reflect on high school was drawing the notions of what we want out of a career if we're smart or deemed as intelligent. Like I know that anyone in my high school who got 98, I'm going to do medicine or law without ever actually thinking about what will that career and life look like. And I only have one friend who got a law degree and then never wanted to be a practicing lawyer because she was aware enough to be like, oh, no, that is absolute bullshit and I don't want that, like, day-to-day lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the – well, I'm going through this – I went through it myself and now I'm going through it again with my son in a different country. So the U.S. is, I feel like, on steroids in this regard. Um 
So in mm-hmm. Australia, I went to uh, an academic high school. It's a selective high school. And I believe I may have been the only girl in my year to not go to university. And I was pulled into the principal's office and berated because I didn't want to apply for, like fill out the form in order for my my TER score to be like given to me after I'd done all my exams. I was going to do my exams, sure, but I didn't necessarily need the tertiary entrance rank to get into a university. When they like pulled me over the coals, so because it was going to reflect badly on the school. But and, I mean, that's like, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I was going to say that. No. You, like, I mean, you're a bit older than I am. And so I feel like also like that's happening a lot more commonly these days. But I mean, back then, like what gave you that gusto to be like, actually, fuck this. It's not what I want to do. Uh, I'm not actually sure, (laughs) but I know that uh, I had been kind of forced into a very independent mindset um, just through my living circumstances. So um, my parents split up when I was 12 and um, through a series of events, I chose to stay with my father and live with him. And then um, he he lost his job and then he took a while to find work. So when he did find work, he kind of went for um, the thing that he could and it was in Wollongong. I was living in Sydney. We were living in Sydney and it was in Wollongong. So he was um, commuting to begin with, but then over time, Uh, stopped commuting, started staying down there. So from the age like 15, I was kind of running my own show and living at home but without parental supervision because my mother, um, by that stage, my mother and um, her new partner had moved uh, up the coast. So, yeah, I think that, that built a sense of independent thinking in me in a way that I felt like I could make my own decisions and um, maybe a sense that without that authority from a parental standpoint around that, you know, authority from a school perspective didn't mean much either. Um, th- I think there was that. And then I think there was also the the fact that I was a, I'm a very um, kinetic or kinesthetic learner. I learn hands-on. I would far prefer to be learning on the job than sitting in textbooks. And so I kind of made this choice that I just wanted to get out into the world as quickly as possible. And I, I did go to a, um, in Australia called a college, which is not what it is in America. It was a diploma course that was one year, 8.30 till 5.30 every day that I, w- I was there. So it was like taking a job basically for a year. Um, whereas all my friends had like 14 contact hours at university. I was there 8.30 to 5.30 every day, basically doing a business course with marketing as a major. And I got through it in a year and then I was out in, in the workforce. So for me, it was just about like speeding it up, I think. It's so funny because I think that I, I, I have moments where I think I'm an ambitious person. And then when I look back at the trajectory of your career and how you applied yourself, I'm like, God, I'm fucking lazy. Like when I really look at it and I'm like, <laughs> I would I would just have not had that kind of focus, I think. But again, I also didn't have to think for myself at 15, which I'm sure is a lot to unpack. Yeah. And I think now, I mean, after years and years of therapy, I look back on it and I think that was how I defined myself, right? Because I, I didn't have, um, 
I didn't have family around me to kind of help me with uh, defining my sense of self. So to me, I did well at school on my own. People thought it was amazing that I did really well because I didn't have um, a lot of support. And so that kind of fed my ego. And so I would, I kept going for that, that dopamine rush of, oh, well, I'm just going to keep pushing, keep pushing, keep achieving so that that external validation kept coming. But yeah. it, I think over time you kind of learn that external validation is not where it's at. Well, I have a quote of yours. My identity was so intricately woven with my value at work that I'd routinely sacrificed almost everything in my life in the name of work. That included my role as a mother, my friendships, my connection to myself, and more. I felt that if work wasn't going well, it meant I was a failure, worthless, and if I'm honest, unlovable. Now, I don't, you don't necessarily have to keep diving into your own psyche with that, but do you think that a lot of women are doing that? Like, do you think we're all just kind of going, here are these external factors that will validate who we are in this world? Yeah, I think to, to an extent our awareness of it is, um, is a spectrum. Uh, I was at an interesting event recently and someone kind of dropped the mic at the end that it re- kind of really blew my mind. It was, we were talking about finances and it was all women and uh, – it was, it's in America. So take this, I don't know what the, what it was in Australia, but in America, women could not open their own bank account until like the sixties or seventies. They couldn't be in control of their own money. And this is the 1960s and seventies, right? So this is like my generation, a little bit older than my generation. This was the first time that these women, um, could, have some status and have some fiduciary responsibility. And I feel like this generation has kind of then take it, taken it upon itself to kind of undo all the ancestral damage of that. And the way of doing that is to, to swing the pendulum completely the other way and say, well, I'm not going to be at home. I'm going to be in the workforce. I'm going to juggle it all. I'm going to do it all. And I'm going to prove you all wrong that we could, we were never able to do this. And, uh, I don't I don't disagree with um, that being an, an ambition. I think it's amazing what we're able to do now and I feel very grateful for living in a time where that's even possible. But at the same time, I kind of think, well, to to what end? <laughs> and and is that really the purpose of life? And so um, they're like big questions, of course. But I do think that that is that's the climate that we're in is um, women being super ambitious because we almost collectively as a, as generations have something to prove, and I'm wondering who we're trying to prove it to. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. But I also feel like the world benefits from women in regards to the way in which we do process things, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think it's a it's so important to have women in the workplace. I think it's so important to have women in politics. I think there needs to be uh, that balance. I think, you know, without wanting to go on a rant about the patriarchy, I think we're all operating in a system that's very um, built for men, even just in the way that, uh, you know, a man goes through his um, cycle of energy uh, in a 24-hour period and women go through their cycle of energy in a 28-day period. And so if you think about just the way 
the world works and particularly the workplace works. It's built around a 24-hour day, whereas our energy levels as women completely change over the course of a month and the type of work we should be doing at any given day of the month could should could and should probably change. But we we just keep pushing because we're trying to do it in a man's way. Yeah, I 100% think that women should have a lot more leniency with hormones and the way that that energy is distributed. But it made me think, did you, were you aware of that when you had actual team? Like, did you see it? Because I feel like we can uh, talk about it as women, but I feel like I would be yeah. so curious to know if you saw it as a leader. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I'm not sure I have spent much time contemplating it other than how it has affected me. However, um, now that you're saying that, yes, <laughs> I do think I can. I could see when there would be um, particularly periods of um, there's like a wax and a wane, just like the moon, of uh, how much clarity as well a woman has or, and how much um, confidence a woman has depending on the work. And so I think at certain points in the month, it would be very, very easy for women to like lean in, push, strive, organize, hustle, get it out. And then other times they just needed more space. And I would find that sometimes there would be a period where more of the women in the team would be asking to work from home or work from outside of the office because the office was a hyper-masculine energy. And so to be be able to work away from that and work at their own speed and in their own kind of energy level, I think was probably the re- an unconscious aspect to that request, but it would tend to come in waves. I'm totally going to become a lot more aware of when I'm like, I wish I wasn't in the office space right now. And it makes sense when you think about actually how office, office environments function, which is, I mean, shit within itself. Um, okay. So yeah. I want to, I would love your opinion on what you would say to those who are having that restlessness, because I feel like you made such a pivot in your life, whether, or, I mean, I was, I'm curious to know if that came from, you started to really understand yourself as opposed to just the striving, the accolades, the ego or if it was like you just started to look at life in a different way. Because I know for me, I have a lot of friends right now who are in careers that they, you know, picked when they're 18 with no idea. And they're kind of just going, I'm so bored with my days. I'm not fulfilled by what I'm doing. And it's kind of like, how do we all start to make those pivots for ourselves? Yeah, I think for me, it took, uh, it took a little while for that awareness even though I'd had all of those um, signs and moments in my life where I had thought about going and doing something else but had never um, pulled the trigger, never taken the leap, uh, I had always made it a bit of a side hustle or a hobby. Uh, I think the big change for me was getting out of my head because I think when we're trying to make these decisions from our heads, uh, ego is at play. So we're making decisions based on what feeds our ego And for me, I made a very conscious decision after feeling literally like I was at the bottom of an avalanche for the back half of 2017. I just thought, you know, something has to change. And so without wanting to um, pull the pin at that point, because my son had just started high school, high school starts a bit later in, in America, and he was really enjoying his school. So I didn't want to like uproot his life. I I Mm. knew I just had to stick at it, but I had to do it in a different way. So I 
I made a commitment to myself, an annual mantra uh, that I would follow my heart. And what that meant for me was every time I kind of came to one of those important decisions or an important crossroads or I, f- I was feeling overwhelmed or feeling like I just wasn't in, in flow with life, that I would stop and I would get out of my head and I would really just connect with my body and listen to what um, the intelligence of my body was telling me. That sounds super woo-woo, but I am kind of a bit woo-woo. But but I think I didn't really make that a practice. I used to to talk that language a lot, but I never did it. And it wasn't until I made it a practice and very much did it on a regular basis daily, not just in meditation with my eyes closed, but in those moments when I was making decisions, I would stop. I would take a big, deep breath and I'd be like, okay, wait like what is my heart telling me to do? And usually it would be something to my brain that was completely irrational. But because I'd made this commitment to myself at the beginning of the year, and I'm like one of those all the way on or all the way off kind of people. So (laughs) once I'd made this all the way on decision, like that's what I was going to do. I was just going to do what my heart said. Uh, I was following it and my brain was often screaming at me, telling me that I was irrational, that this didn't make any sense, that, you know, all of the things that inner critic would go wild. But ultimately I kept um, following it and it didn't make a lot of sense to begin with. And then things started happening. So uh, I started having ideas around uh, creating uh, a journal that was to, to create, um, was basically to take all the mindfulness tools that I had been using in the workplace to make, keep myself sane and putting them into a format that other people could use and I, I don't think I would have had the, um, the wherewithal or the, or the courage to do that in the face of how incredibly busy, I hate that word, but how incredibly busy I was at the time. I made space for that because that's what my heart was telling me to do. And that took me on a journey. I, I followed my heart all over the all over the world, I went to Kauai. I went back home and went to Uluru. Like I started just going to these places that I was feeling really called to go to. And every time I went there, something would show up and teach me something. And I was like, huh, okay, that's why I needed to come here. And I think it was just doing that, that it, it just kept me reconnecting to myself rather than constantly looking around me and saying, what is everybody else doing and how can I be more like them? I just kept returning to myself in a way. So it did take a while, uh, but that became a practice. And then I think it was through the course of that that I, uh, that I really started getting these messages that I was extremely uncomfortable and wanted to move out of that discomfort. But I think the when you're pushing and pushing and pushing, it can be so easy to stay in that discomfort and just keep pushing because you're not aware of it. You're not sitting in your body enough. Do you think we'll ever actually get to this point where we change the whole construct around work and life and what it means to actually live a life as opposed to living to work? I feel like we are making some progress against this. Um, like I've got to take my hat off to the millennial generation for this, but I think also this next generation that my son is in, Gen Z, Gen Z, depending on who's listening, <laughs> uh, the 
there is a shift, I think, in prioritization and the, um, the sense of prioritizing freedom and flexibility over title and sort of the definition around that. Uh, it's not everyone, but I do see enough of it that I feel like the tide is changing and there is a redefinition of that. Um, I think the gig economy is, uh, it's a symptom of that. When I first started my business in Australia, which was pre the term gig economy, everybody was freelance because we just wanted to work together as independent, awesome humans. And that would have been called the gig economy. But then Uber made it like a thing, which is now a commodity. And I think that's really sad because I think the the gig economy has so much potential for people to have more agency over how they live and how they work, but only so long as they don't sell their soul to corporations like Uber. Yeah. See, I I live between these two moments where I think, well, I'm only having this conversation because I'm privileged. You know, like we're sitting here talking Mm -hmm. about passion, ambition, and yet we have a certain level of privilege and it's kind of like, okay, well, is that entitled or do I continue to not live my life after the things I want? Um, And what about to those who this isn't economically available for? Do you know what I mean? Like I, I sit between, do I just stomach doing shit I don't like doing? because there are people in this world who will never have these opportunities. Or do you kind of go, hey, this is my one life and I want to make the most of it? Yeah, I totally hear you. Uh, I, I think about this a lot, particularly when people are talking about how challenged they are and, you know, we get into these rooms of people and we start talking about the greatest challenges we've overcome. I'm like, wow, you know, those challenges are privileges, really. Absolutely. Uh, At the same time, I kind of think that um, if we can be doing this while also being in service of the greater good, then then there's a balance to it because I think the um, the evolution of humanity is such that there is always a group of people who are changing the paradigm and uh, and building something different, which then goes on to better the world, albeit at different paces, but better the world overall. And so it's, I think it's fascinating. Let's talk about Facebook for a minute. Facebook gets such a bad rap in the Western world because of everything they're doing with data, uh, all the political stuff. I get it. You go to um, much of uh, the African continent and go to some of the the poorest um, communities there and they love what Facebook is doing because it is giving them some infrastructure that they n- never previously had that's allowing them to connect in um, different ways and commercially get commercially and as a community get completely different outcomes. So it used to be quite life-threatening if you lived in a particular place and you couldn't get um, your blood type to you Mm. fast enough for a transfusion. So there are developers in that local community who have used Facebook to create the ability to put an alert out that they're looking for a certain type of blood and for everybody who is that blood type to go to their nearest donation center, and that's saving lives. So that's kind of stuff that we take for granted where we live because blood banks yeah. are plentiful everywhere <laughs> and and uh and yet 
people don't see that side of what something like Facebook is able to do. So I do think, yes, Mark Zuckerberg takes a lot of crap. And yes, there's probably some stuff that he could be doing better. But at the same time, I think when overall all boats are kind of rising, you've got to look at it in its in its totality rather than in isolation. Yeah, I had no idea about that. That's kind of cool when you think about what it is. I was thinking about how Steve Jobs invented the iPhone. The iPhone invented apps. Apps allowed things like Instagram. Instagram allowed things like influencers. And yet it all wouldn't have happened if you hadn't have really gotten the iPhone. And Facebook wouldn't be as big. Like it's just kind of crazy when you think about these one inception points and then a whole economy has grown from them. Yeah. Or just the internet, right? Yeah. Well, definitely. But I think like when it's in your pocket, it's kind of like here, it's right now, it's instantaneous. It goes back to our dopamines and all those drug hits that we're after. Um, So I was curious to know, you now have more space, you have more time, you have more freedom. What also has that opened up for you in regards to the things that you're caring and passionate about? Because I feel like in the time I've known you, we actually never really talk about work as much as we talk about, or or at least you're informing me of all these crazy things that are happening or that you're, um, I guess, uh, giving your time to. Uh, yeah, well, I'm happy to hear that. I don't think I live a, uh, a, a very, um, varied life. I think it's, it's become, actually it's become more simple, I think more so than I've just packed a lot more in. So, uh, I moved to Oregon so I could be closer to nature um, being in New York, that was the one thing that I missed the most about Australia is just how easily and readily we have access to nature back home. Um, whereas uh, in New York, <laughs> you know, yes, there's Central Park, but it's it's really not nature. It's man-made. It's absolutely not nature, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, being here, I'm, I'm quite literally surrounded by it, like deer run into my backyard and I'm constantly um, woken by some kind of critter and I can walk uh, into forests from from where I live. So I think that um, has given me a lot of not just um, energy because I get a lot of energy from doing that, but uh, mental space to think about things in a non-work context to really think about what actually matters. And uh, it's allowed me and my son to spend a lot more time together, which is um, important. You know, when I first moved to New York, I thought, well, he was 11 at the time. And I thought, well, he's going to be a teenager soon. He won't want to talk to me anyway. He'll be like, see you, mom. (laughs) But that didn't really happen. You know, he, yeah, he like had his friends and he was a normal teenager, but he certainly wasn't like slamming doors and grunting at me and refusing to speak to me. In fact, he would get kind of upset when I was working too hard and hadn't seen me in a long time. So I think this next generation of children, I used to think he was really special. And then we did a bunch of research about this generation at work and I realized, oh, wait, they're all like that. (laughs) So what do you think is changing in regards to how they balance their energy? Uh, I think there is, I think it's really easy to look, um, look at this next generation and say, oh, they're always on their phones. So therefore, um, you know, they, they're not having a full human experience. And I think that's, um, that's nearsighted because they're, they are exposed to so much more than what 
I was at their age and are having deeper, richer conversations about life and the future and even just the present moment. It kind of I look at this generation and I think, well, if you if you ever um, questioned whether each generation was like an up level in humanity from the last, I think this one is kind of proving it. Just the way that the they're taking agency for themselves and uh, not allowing the fact that you know they don't have the right to vote until they're a bit older, that doesn't stop them from trying to change policy and trying to speak out about things that impact their future. Uh, and, you know, there's the really, really obvious examples of this, but I think that's what's interesting is when you scratch bes- below the surface, it's kind of all pervasive. This is just the way that this generation think, and they've got different tools for having their voice heard. So having their so- voice heard is is really a core core need of theirs. But what about the idea of people who just become social Instagram warriors and they just flog up a post and they think they've actually done something? Like how do we actually step out of that and truly go and make change? Yeah, I think the, um, I don't know if you've been following the um, March for Our Lives movement, which of course started as a march uh, in response to, you know, all of the, Um, gun violence in schools. However, that um, community of teens, and now now some of them have aged up and they're, you know, going to college, but that community uh, have been systematically trying to change gun laws. So they started by lobbying the lawmakers and then they didn't get very far, how unusual, um, but then they moved on from that. So they, they, I believe what then happened was they discovered, I think it might have been Apple, that you can't use the Apple, you can't use Apple Pay or the Apple credit card to buy a gun. You, oh, really? Yeah, there's some technological um, barrier. I'm probably misquoting it, but there's something like that. <laughs> and so they were inspired by that and so they went to all the credit card companies and said, you shouldn't be able to buy a credit card. You shouldn't be able to buy a gun on your credit card. Just like you can't gamble on your credit card, why should you be able to buy a gun on your credit card? Because these kids or these people that are perpetrating these horrific crimes, they don't have money to buy a gun. You know, they're going and using a credit card to buy this stuff. So right. they went down that path, and uh, you know they got pretty far apparently until you know the NRA stepped in and did their thing. And, uh, so then, but then they didn't stop, you know, they then went and, um, started petitioning Walmart and the retailers that are selling all of these and said, actually, do you even need to be selling automatic rifles? And so you, I don't know if you've seen some of the lists of all the retailers that have removed certain types of weapons and certain types of ammunition from their shelves under pressure from these kids. But are they actually, I mean, gun violence isn't something that is as prolific or at all as much in Australia, but have you noticed that it's the guns that people are really using? Like, is that the ones that they're removing or are they just removing the ones that are kind of, yeah, no worries. And we're kind of, we look like we're doing something, but we're still going to make profit from the thing that people want so much. Oh, well, I, I will be happy to have any guns off, um, off the streets, particularly around our schools in the U S but yeah, automatic uh, assault rifles are doing the most damage because, you know, it's got a huge magazine and 
you just have to be holding that button and off you go. I don't even know, trigger. Mm-hmm. It's not even a button. So much I know about guns. <laughs> but it's like the threat is real. My son has been in two lockdowns and. Really? Yeah. Is it yeah. terrifying and, as you a know, mom? The, like, like it, I feel it is, like I mean, I both ter- those times were terrifying. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, I feel like I would be terrified now to have a kid. Like everyone asks me, are you going to have a child? And I think. Look, from the basic response of like, no, we don't really want to have a child. But I also think about the moment you have a child, it would just be terrifying thinking of all the things that can go wrong. And especially living in America, I feel like guns is quite up there. Yeah, I must admit, I I think about that more here than I did at home in Australia. Uh, and I mean, the the gun violence thing is is so out there and you feel so out of control of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you, I then think about how hypervigilant schools are. So the two lockdowns were um, a false alarm, if you like. They were people that had seen something and said something. And so they had taken precautionary measures, investigated, done searches, and then lifted the lockdown. So there wasn't like an active threat, but I, um, but at, at the time, you don't know that. You just get pieces of information. And so it's terrifying in the moment. But then after, I was like, well, I'm so glad that they're so hypervigilant about it because it is the, the threat of that is real. Uh, back home in Australia, you know, I think you think about different things with your kids. I was thinking about this. Um, actually, my son and I were talking about it because he's still connected with a lot of the kids that he went to primary school with. And they have taken a very different path to him. And I think drugs and alcohol are the are more of the threat in Australia than uh, than guns. Or it's not to say that they're not a threat here, but I just think the the culture of particularly alcohol in Australia is a, a really big threat to our generations there. What do you mean by that? Because my quick response was, well, I certainly know a lot of my friends in America who just overdosed on too much weed and getting high all the time. It's interesting. Yeah, I don't think I'm classifying weed. Yeah, yeah, weed I think is, um, I put that in a separate classification. I won't go down a a rabbit hole and, you know, how that actually works well with the body (laughs) because it is, we're uniquely designed to be using that plant. Um, but I think from it's a cultural thing from an alcohol perspective where I was just writing about this. I haven't published it yet, but I remember growing up, alcohol was very normalized um, it, for me in Australia, like to the point where my parents had me serving them and their friends at like age seven and eight, <laughs> which is like crazy. Like a butler. I was like a bartender, Uh, but, uh, you know, and that led to, I I drank way too much and I binge, um, I was binge drinking way too much. Uh, I grew out of that, but last year I gave up drinking for various reasons. And when I returned home, I didn't get questions about it here, but when I returned home and uh, would go out to any social situation. The questions, the loaded questions that you get in Australia when you're not drinking, uh, is pretty extraordinary. And I think it's it, the culture of 
alcohol goes pretty deep in our country. Yeah, I would agree with that 100%. You see it on the weekends, you see it everywhere, but yeah. Um, I did want to ask you about how can we, as we make these shifts within our work environments, within our lives, within ourselves, how can we incorporate more mindfulness? Because for those who are restless and those who can't yet escape their careers or leave their careers or transition, how can we at least start to bring more day-to-day happiness and peace to our lives? Yeah, I love talking about this. Uh, There's a few things I think we can do which are not only bringing um, greater happiness and peace, but can actually help you be more creative and more productive at work. And there, it's as simple as taking a break. I think mm. uh, with our always on, even if you go out for lunch, you still got your phone with you. You're probably still checking your emails. Uh, even if you do decide you're going to go for a little walk, you're probably checking your phone. So, you know, that always on and those digital distractions, um, it, it impacts your, your brain and your, your physiology. So I think there's a number of things. First and foremost, just taking a breath. Everyone is shallow breathing. When you're so hyper-focused and in your head, you are shallow breathing. It's almost impossible to be deep breathing when you're that in the zone of like being in work mode. So just stopping and and taking a couple of deep breaths. Um, I used to set an alarm on my phone that told me to breathe. (laughs) Really? It was that bad, was it? Yeah, and I would stop and take three deep breaths every time that alarm would go off. Uh, So it started out that way, but then it becomes a habit, right? So breathing, number one. Uh, Number two is, you know, stopping in that moment where you feel so overwhelmed and like you don't know which way to turn and it happens usually because your stress levels are spiking and cortisol is running through your brain you the the thing that happens uh, without going too much into like the physiology of it is when cortisol spikes um, the part of your brain that is responsible for self-awareness shuts down so you start operating from a fear center and which is a fight or flight response Uh, so you're not making the best decisions at that time. Uh, so the best thing that you can do is really stop, pull back, uh, take a breath and even go for a 10 to 15 minute walk, walk outside, go in. Um, I used to take a journal outside and just write whatever was in my head out onto a page just to get it out. Sometimes I would sit out there and draw. Um, sometimes I would leave everything behind and just go and strike up a conversation with someone on the high line. And it would just reground me in the fact that we're all just here having a human experience. And by the way, my work was not saving lives. And I would then go back to that situation and make a fundamentally more conscious decision. So that's like in the micro, I think, you know, they're the things that we can be doing in the day-to-day is just reminding ourselves that not everything is urgent. I think there's this like constant pressure that everything is so urgent and we're just like rushing, rushing, rushing to the next deadline. And unless you literally work in an ER, it is not that important. (laughs) Nothing is that important. It's almost like we're so afraid of being disconnected to miss something, but we're missing life in those moments. I was going to say one of the things I did was uh, I took my work emails off my phone and that was quite controversial uh, but no one knew. I didn't tell anyone. I, it was actually a bit of a social experiment. I love running social experiments on myself. So I 
I took my work emails off my phone and I figured that my boss usually texted me anyway. So I wasn't missing any like boss related things. And I thought, well, I'll just see if anyone notices that my response times are longer. No one noticed after a day, no one noticed after a week. So I just thought, oh, I'll just keep going. Months went by, no one noticed. And then I think I was bragging about it one day and my boss overheard me and he was horrified that that's what I had done. I was like, well, you haven't noticed and my work hasn't suffered. No one's complained. So do I really need to be connected all of the time? Because I still had it on my laptop. If I really needed to go open my laptop, I could. But what was the outcome of that? Because I do know that you have been, you're a recovering workaholic. Yeah, it's an ongoing process. Um, I think for me, it really showed me how much of the problem was in myself and that the pressure um, was not external. It was coming from within me, this this weird, I don't even, I can't even identify where it comes from, this weird need to be available and to be ready and willing to respond to anything at any time that was coming from within me. I think it's really easy to sort of blame it on a work culture, but I had, I proved that that was incorrect. Like my work didn't notice. It was me that had to be retrained. I kind of think that's such a good thing. I'm like, what could I do in my life and see if people are observing or noticing? Okay. I feel like I could ask you a million more questions, but to end on my final one, you're standing in front of a room of 10,000 women and you're able to offer one piece of advice. What would you say? I think I would just tell these women uh, to take at least 10 minutes a day uh, to listen to their intuition and listen to themselves and make, make decisions based from what that is telling them. Even if that changes day by day, consistency does not matter as much as society likes to tell us it does. Oh, I like that last line. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Modern Women. If this content is delivering value to you, it would be so helpful and appreciated if you head to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher and rate and review us as that helps us build this incredible community. And ultimately, that is what this is all about, building this community as big as we can to help as many women as possible. And all of your ratings and reviews truly help with that. And before I go, a shout out to Chunky Love for the original music and to Mr. Darren Lake over at Podpace for helping me produce this show for all of you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 